everybody. Welcome. Grab a seat. We're going to get started off here in a second. We're so glad that you came. Welcome to Theology on Tap. If you're new, my name is Justin Hare. This is Brian McGreevy. We're thrilled you're here. Tonight's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we've been doing this now for, uh, for, I don't know, a while. And normally what we'll do is we'll have a conversation about a given topic, uh, and then we'll open it up to questions. We're going to do something a little different because we've had so many good questions over the last... I don't know, uh, 10 July. sessions, whatever, yeah, since June when we started, that um, all of these are filled with all the questions we haven't gotten to yet uh, that you guys have asked, and so we're going to get to them tonight, at least until we'll probably go 20 minutes or so, and then we'll throw it open uh, to new questions maybe that you'll have. So you'll see these pieces of paper around the room. Uh, this top QR code, you can submit any new question right now uh, people can like that, and hopefully we'll get some more questions that are fresh tonight. So, uh, really excited. Um, and we could just start right out. Oh, this is, you'll see these as well. This is the schedule for the fall that we have. We've got small groups. If you're interested in joining those, there's also another QR code that you can join a small group. Uh, but this has the schedule for all of that, as well as the future theology on tap. So... Um, we're really glad you're here, and Brian, how do you want to do this? Do you want to just... Um, I think what we should do is you can just pull one out. You want me to do that? All read right. it, and then we can take a stab at answering. <laughs> That's simple. All right. So we're totally unprepared as usual for these, so... Yeah, this will be interesting. All right. I have friends I can be vulnerable with already. What steps can I take to make those friendships even deeper? Wow. Okay, that is a great question. So I want to start uh, just by talking a little bit about vulnerability. Um, vulnerability is a word that uh, I think gets thrown around a lot, but people don't necessarily think about what it means. And for me, in the context of friendship, and I'm drawing out of C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, um, which if you've never read that book, please do yourself a favor and read it. It's really great. Best thing on friendship ever some interesting sound going feedback, on. Yeah. Um, but what Lewis basically says is vulnerability is a precondition for real love and real communication. And one way of thinking about vulnerability is taking the mask off. Taking off the facade that you put on uh, in front of everyone uh, and being who you really are. Talking about things that are close to your heart, your dreams, your fears, things that have hurt you, things that bring you joy, um, and talking about those in a meaningful and not flippant kind of way. It's sort of a self-revealing kind of process. And the problem is that we live in a culture uh, where that is uh, very often mocked and made fun of, uh, particularly if you're a guy. Uh, I think women are generally better at vulnerability although there can be um, problems there as well, but I think guys are maybe a little bit worse about that. But I think what the question is asking is if you've already got some vulnerability, how you get to a, a better level. And one of the things you can do is to learn to ask really good questions. Most of us are not very good at asking good questions, but asking questions about uh, things that are going to lead to a deeper conversation. Tell me about the time that you felt closest to God in your life, and tell me what that was like. Tell me about a time where you really experienced joy, joy that you weren't expecting and it just happened. Tell me about that. Tell me about a time where you were really hurt in a relationship. You know, questions like that where you open the door for somebody, because most of us are not going to you know, in the middle of how was your day at work? Oh yeah, it really sucked, you know, my boss is such a Nazi and you know, um, you're not gonna really say, let me tell you about my pain. Um, yeah, that's not gonna happen. So asking those kinds of questions can make a big difference. Another thing that I think is a really great thing to do is get in the habit of going on walks with people. There's something about going on a walk and this again is very much what Lewis and Tolkien and their friends did, um, that gives you the opportunity to be able to have a longer conversation. And vulnerability, um, you know, that may be a little awkward if you're in a restaurant where there's another person that's like eight inches away from you. 
Um, but if you're on a walk, you're kind of in your own little zone. So those yeah. are some thoughts. What would you yeah, have to no, say? Yeah, no, I love that. I, my thought went to the golf course where, or on car rides. I mean, we would mm-hmm. travel places. I love that opportunity because you really do get a chance to, um, you know, just ask things. And it becomes eventually where you, it's just, if you just sat there in silence all the time, it'd be awkward. But you have an opportunity over a prolonged period of time to, to really get to know people. And, um, you know, the question is talking about, I can't, I feel like I can be vulnerable with people, but maybe how can I go deeper? And I think there's a big difference between feeling like you can be vulnerable with somebody and actually being vulnerable with them. And as, as you said, I would agree. I think it's easier, uh, perhaps maybe for, for women, that's just more acceptable than for guys for, for whatever reason. Uh, but mm-hmm. having, you know, for instance, I feel like I could be vulnerable with my wife, but oftentimes mm-hmm. what she's saying is, I wish you would tell me more of like actually what you're feeling and thinking. I'm like, oh, that's probably good. I should do that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things we do just with our family is like, it, it sounds corny, but it actually does a lot of, you know, rose, bud, and thorn. You're yeah. talking about what are the highs? What are the lows? Um, you know, one of the professors I had in seminary for um, like pastoral care, just listen to what's, what's the good what's the hard and what's the bad. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, entering into the good in people's lives is the easiest. Um, and then the hard and the bad is usually a little bit, the next step, it's really easy to come along somebody who's experiencing something that's hard. And so yeah. I, I think it's both, we wanna be people who draw that out. And so just being attentive and being present with people, listening to them, uh, but also asking good questions uh, and being willing, so it, it's both that and being willing to go there yourself. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point because what you don't want to do is to come across as the therapist where you're telling me about your father, you know, and you're just asking question after question and you're not revealing anything about yourself. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think could be a good mechanism for going deeper, uh, and you can do this with one person or with two or three, and this is something I generally do every year with a couple of friends, is at the beginning of the new year, um, block a half day to be together and talk about creating some goals and doing some evaluation of the past year, what you felt good about, where you felt like a failure, all those kinds of things, and then share that with each other and pray for each other. That can be very powerful as well. Yeah. And that, so I was thinking too, like the regular scheduled times, yearly is great. Uh, even weekly, I think, just having a little bit, I think one of the problems is often we don't slow down enough to really reflect mm-hmm. on what is going on in our lives. Often we're just going from one thing to the next. So yeah. I think that's pretty helpful. Um, should we go to that? Let's go sure. to that. I'm going to keep picking on this one. <laughs> okay. Is the secular expression of vocation? Do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. Is that helpful or unhelpful? Hmm. Is the secular expression of vocation, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life, is that helpful or unhelpful? I would say it depends. Uh, I think it can be very helpful. I think one of the things that that dials into uh, is that, uh, particularly as Christians, one of the things that we believe is that Joy is something that should be part of our lives, not something that happens once in a blue moon, but it should be something that is part of our lives. Um, Another great Lewis quote is he says, joy is the serious business of heaven, that we're made for joy. So if you um, are doing something that you love, that brings you joy in your work, um, there is a lot of truth to the fact that it won't seem like work. Now the downside to that, that we touched on when we were in uh, an earlier theology on tap is that sometimes it's hard to have good boundaries. Um, If you really love what you do, you want to just do your job all the time and you don't ever take a step back from that. But I do think that um, sometimes people hear that and they think if I am not just ecstatically happy every moment that I'm working then I must not be doing the right thing. And um, I just want to say that I love what I do. Uh, It is awesome. But there are moments when, uh, for example, I'm setting up technology for a class or something like that, um, and it's not working, and the Wi-Fi connection keeps dropping. Um, 
that's not full of joy, but that's not the, the overall um, scope of the job. So I think that the, the extremes are where you can sometimes get in yeah. trouble with that. What would you say? Yeah, I, a lot of the same. The understanding of love, we, I think we've touched on that before, but how the culture understands love versus how a Christian in the Bible understands love um, are, are very different. So one is essentially it's synonymous with happiness, and I think that's what you warned against was, uh, you know, if, if you're only looking for your own happiness, that's probably, it's certainly a factor in, in are you feeling uh, joy, as you said, as you do uh, whatever it is that you're called to. But I think that, you know, the thing with that is it's so, um, you know, self-centered in some ways. Like, it, a calling by nature is something that comes from God for the purpose of the world. And so the only thing with that, I, I think by and large, yeah, that's, that can be, I think it's helpful. Is that the only thing I would say no in, in trying to discern a vocation? The other, one of the I think we mentioned, like, a vocation is something that we feel first and foremost from the Lord uh, but it's also where the needs of the world are met. And so, you know, if you're what was it, um, doing what you love, well, there's plenty of vocations that you're not going to love, but God may be calling to you. Marriage is a great example of that. You know, if you are in marriage, the second that you stop loving what you're doing, the culture would say you should stop. But God is actually calling you to do things many times, um, that being just one vocation, uh, where you need to persevere through that. Yeah. And I think the other thing, too, is, you know, this is an extreme example, but if what you love is binging on Netflix, um, that is not what God is calling you to for your vocation and your work. Um, you know, that, that, you have to make some distinctions there. But the other thing I would say, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago also, um, Romans 12 is a great scripture chapter to study just in general, but there's a wonderful part in Romans 12 that says, Having gifts according to the grace that God gives us, let us use them. If our gift is in teaching, then in teaching. If it is in encouraging, then in encouraging. And I think part of what Paul's trying to say there is you want to lean into your giftedness. God has made each one of us with different gifts. And if you are in a career or a job that is totally against the way that you're designed, so like if you are an extreme extrovert and you are um, locked in a closet and dealing with um, math, math all day long, <laughs> that probably is not a good long-term fit. So I think being aware of what your gifts are and how those yeah. are used is important. And I feel like that ties in. That's where probably it's helpful on some levels. Mm -hmm. yep. I think that's what it's getting at. So, good question. All right. Oh, yeah. I can't, can't I just come to church every Sunday? Why do I need to share the gospel? I'm not a priest. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Um, I don't know why Colton didn't pick that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so there's several things about that. I mean, I love it because it's very honest. It's very honest. Um, but there are a couple of things where there are some fundamental assumptions behind that question that I would say are a little skewed. Um, the first one is that coming to church every Sunday, although that is a very good practice to have, that is not what it means to be a Christian. Um, if I went to hate tire every day, that would not mean I was a car. So, yeah, um, the, the idea of going to church, you go to church because you're wanting to go to worship God. And so, when you want to go to worship God, the idea of worship is that you are putting yourself in subjection under God who knows more and loves you more than we could ever imagine. And so, because of that, we want to be able to please God. And one of the things that we know from the scriptures is that those who are followers of Jesus are told in what's called the Great Commission um, to go and make disciples of all nations. Not just people who are priests. Um, and in many other places we are told to be able to give a 
reason for the hope that is within you. So well, I was looking up right here. That's, that does, we're doing mind meld, it's great. Um, but you know, it does not mean, a lot of people think that sharing their faith, being an evangelist means that you like get a loud speaker and you get a 40 foot tall wooden cross and you walk around downtown Charles and you're like, repent! Um, that is not evangelism. And that is not what Jesus did. Jesus built friendships with people and he often, here's walking again, he often walked with them on the road and talked about what was going on in their life, and that was what led into talking about the kingdom of God. Yeah, I, again, I'm sympathetic with the question. Um, you, you do, rec- I think there is something that on, on the basic level, every Christian is uh, someone who's been made new. And so you're going to have naturally new desires, and those desires become more and more conformed to the desires that God has himself. And if God is, is love, uh, that's one of the things that's going to be coming out more often in a Christian. And so God's, the goodness of God, the love of God, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, really, is going to bubble up over time in a Christian life. And so I think in some ways, uh, part of that, you, we do want to encourage people to share the hope that they have that's in them. Because if you're a Christian, on some level, there has been some good news that you've clung to that's penetrated your own heart. I would say that if you don't have that, if you have no hope within you, then you're really not a Christian. And so it's not trying Then you should talk to a priest. Yeah. Um, and that's okay, but let's just call it a Christian is not somebody who just goes to church, and that's, yeah. that's okay. Um, but a Christian is somebody who has encountered uh, the good news that Jesus has to offer them. And evangelism is, is it should be less of trying to memorize just the right tract or something like that but more of sharing kind of what you talked about the, the good news the hope that they have found in Jesus because that's going to mean far more than just a pre-hearsed memorized little thing especially today yeah know. well and I also think it's and this is sort of a dumb analogy but I'll use it anyway um, if you're really excited about something you share that with the people that you encounter and Justin and I have gotten really excited about something recently. And that something is the fried chicken at Florence's Low Country Kitchen in South Windermere. And it is really good. This is it's not so sponsored good. by them. They're but not getting If we could get we're not sponsored, getting any if Florence could sponsor us, that would be awesome. Uh, but I mean, it was amazing when we ate this fried chicken. They make their and own we, hot sauce. I mean, it yeah. is. Talk to us later. But we, we are telling everybody about Florence's Low Country Kitchen and the fried chicken because it's so great. It falls off the boat. I've never had fried chicken. It's that good. And I mean, if we do that about fried chicken, how much more our relationship with Christ? Yeah. yeah. So again, being a Christian is just doing more of the love, uh, uh, things that you love by being uh, made new and to God's image. All right. Um, would you agree that you don't have to have a conventional job to work? I think vocation. For example, would you say a stay-at-home mom works? <laughs> Do you know a stay-at-home mom? Uh, That's like the most yes. kind of, uh, So uh, that actually is a great question, and I think that there are so many cultural things um, that have happened that kind of go into that question that devalue uh, women who are at home with children. Uh, and the idea that you would say to a woman who's staying at home with children that they're not working, I mean, really, hello, have you ever been in a house with a toddler? Um, but there's been this profound cultural shift where it used to be that people thought well, I'll just give an example. I'm going to brag on my mother for a minute. My mother is a brilliant woman. Um, she very academically strong. She graduated from a very prestigious college. She got a master's degree from another prestigious university. She could have had an incredible career in the worldly sense of things. But she felt strongly called that the most important thing she could do when she had children was to devote herself to staying home and bringing them up. And fortunately, she was in an economic position where she was able to do that. 
But that used to be viewed as noble work, that that was part of the way that civilization was passed on to the next generation, and that the women who were with the children were the ones who were the keepers of culture, who were the keepers of all of what it really means to be fully human, and that they were entrusted with the most important job and mission that there was in society. And then that has kind of flipped now where uh, a lot of women feel like they cannot be all that God made them to be unless they have a um, worldly career that enables them to be successful in worldly terms. Yeah, I think that we've defined work basically are you making a paycheck? Are you getting money? That is a very, very unbiblical understanding yes. of work. Um, work is so much better than that. And that's one of the things, you know, creation in Genesis, it talks about the dignity of all work. So, uh, you know, gardening, you know, oftentimes hobbies, things, those are things that are work uh, for many people. Um, and that can be a, a significant calling, yeah. a significant vocation. I think this question, I actually, um, it's made me change a lot of the ways that I've asked people, you know, I would say, well, does, do does so-and-so work? And I thought more about it. I, I would say, what does your wife do for work? And more, we were in a, a small town where a lot of folks were stay-at-home moms. And it made me really think about like the, the importance of that question. Because, yes, they are working, whether or not they're paid for it. Um, so that's just stay-at-home moms. But, you know, and this is going to tie into, we had another question on retirement. And I think one of the, the problems that we have in retirement is that we associate calling so much with getting a paycheck. Yeah. And if we have a more robust understanding of calling, a more healthy understanding of work and the dignity of it, that it's not just something you do to have a calling, but it's part of, or to have a, a paycheck, but it's part of your, what God's given you to do right. for your life. Yeah, and part of the, the biblical image of that, we talked about this back in the working vocation one, is that a lot of people misread uh, the creation story in Genesis and think that work is the curse that comes with the fall of man. But in fact, God put, it says God put Adam in the garden to tend to the garden and work the garden before the fall. Work is part of what it means to be human and be made in the image of God because God works, God creates, God tends. Yeah, that's great. We've gotten like so many on vocation, so I just went through it. That was on retirement, so we talked about it. Is it okay to live with someone you are dating if you're getting married soon for convenience sake? <laughs> I'm glad this came up because I may have given a confusing answer when we were talking about it before. Yes, I tried to help you out you're with like, that. What are you talking about? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, I think that this is one of those areas where um, we, can, we can get into trouble by not operating out of principle and out of scripture and operating out of pragmatism. And I think one of the, one of the things that uh, Christians believe is that marriage is sacred, that it's something that is a covenant that is not just between the man and the woman, but it is a three-way covenant that involves God as well. And so part of that is keeping, um, and the biblical understanding of keeping sexual relationship for marriage, that only when the covenant is complete is sexual um, expression uh, going to be all that God intended for it to be. And so if you short circuit that by living together, um, and then it's not really clear and here exactly what they mean by living together, but I think that part of the idea in marriage is that you wanna, you wanna be anticipating and looking forward to all of that. And so um, you sort of short circuit that, I think, when you when you choose to do that just for pragmatic reasons. Yeah, yeah so I mean, this doesn't explicitly say sex, but um, that would be, I don't know, I can't think of an analogy, but let's say that, I mean, I've met some folks who wanted to move in together and fully intending not to have sex before marriage, but that's one of those things. It's probably just not wise. I mean, if you're right. living, living slope. and breathing, that's yeah. probably a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> just yeah. So 
But I, I, let's say, for instance, that it does, the question is talking about, well, like, we're basically married, right? I mean, we're engaged, we're about to be engaged, whatever. Um, why is it so bad to sleep together or um, even just move in together? And I think there's a couple things, like, uh, A, the, we have a low understanding of sex as a culture. Like, we view it just as a physical thing, and God has a Transactional. much... Transactional. Yeah, it's yeah. a much better thing in God's eyes. Like, it's actually, yes, it's physical, but it's also a deeply... Uh, sacred and emotional, even a spiritual act that's intended to be something where you're in such a um, devoted relationship that you have nothing, absolutely nothing that you're holding back from the other and person. And nothing to fear. And nothing to fear yeah. because the other person has fully entrusted themselves to you. And believe it or not, that little piece of paper, the, the marriage covenant and actually being married is the, the one thing that secure, I and mean, that's the proof that you have entrusted yourself fully. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes people are maybe dating or engaged and they shouldn't get married. They shouldn't, um, this maybe isn't the right person for that. And moving in, taking those steps it will actually make it only that much more difficult. You know, now all of a sudden you've got, you know, your finances linked with this person. You are in the sense of, uh, you're living in the same place. And so you got to find another place to live if this all of those obstacles are maybe reasons to keep you in a bad relationship that you should get out of. Um, so it, it's probably just not the wisest thing to do on many levels. Well, and the other thing that's interesting is there's a lot of statistical evidence out there that people who live together before they get married are much more likely to get divorced, which seems yeah. uh, counterintuitive, but um, that's been a consistent trend in statistics for some time now. So it's um, one of those things where I've, you know, with all of the people that I've worked with over the years, I've never met anyone who regretted that they didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. But I have met people who regretted the other side. And, you know, part of me in here just wants to say, uh, for those who maybe are like, that's exactly like the same sort of legalism that we'd hear from the church. Like they should, they're, all, they're always in like, no, nowhere in scripture does it say, don't move in with, some, but it, A, it's a totally different world. Um, but we have to have a category for wisdom. Like this is, you're not, you don't get saved, you're not a Christian by, by living a good, wise life. But you should want to live a wise life. And I think this is in the category of just basic wisdom that, um, that we, we want to, to try and have so that life would go well. Right. Uh, it's not the church just like wagging their finger at people. Like, it's actually we care about folks. Yes, uh, because uh, that's what leads to joy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh boy. All right, this one's for Jeff. Um, <laughs> is masturbation with no porn okay for physical relaxation and pleasure? Is sex outside of marriage really sinful? We've touched already on the, the latter question. <laughs> uh, but... This is a good question, and so I'm glad it came up. Yeah, I'll go. That's fine. <laughs> no, I'll go. Um, I think that uh, this is an area that I think a lot of people struggle with and that no one talks about um, because it's embarrassing. Um, but I also think that it's one because people do feel guilty or confused about it that it is important to talk about. Uh, one of the things that you see uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, which if you've never read the Sermon on the Mount, I'd really commend to you to do that. It's short, Matthew 5 through 7, it's just three chapters. But one of the things that happens in the middle of that is Jesus takes a lot of the law uh, and explains that it's not just the outward keeping of the law, but it's what happens with your heart. And so one of the things it says in the Sermon on the Mount is that uh, the Ten Commandments say don't commit adultery. Uh, but Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who has looked lustfully upon a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so there's, there's that whole aspect of trying to keep that purity. So on the one hand, there's sort of the ideal of preserving sex and the um, fantasizing part and all of that, that that should be safe for marriage. Pornography is a whole other issue, and they're specific about not porn yeah. here. Um, I think the, the mechanical, the pure mechanical act of masturbation without lusting, 
Um, there's not a scriptural prohibition against that. Um, but the, the flip side of that is that sex is designed for intimacy with another person, and so there's an incompleteness about that. Oh, but again, the, another facet of that is it's not like this terrible sin that is going to condemn you if that's something that you struggle with. But I do think if you do struggle with it, uh, it's very important to talk with someone about that. Um, I think that it would be less awkward probably to talk to someone of the same gender um, as you about it um, because that can be something that becomes a roadblock in your spiritual life. Yeah. So what would you say to that? Yeah, and you know, we were talking about this, but um, both, I think both porn and this, like 15 years ago, we would have said this is just a men's issue, but it's, it really isn't now. I think uh, you're seeing on both of those levels that it, it can equally be uh, across either gender. Um, and so I think that's sound advice. Um, I, I assume the question's coming from somebody who's most like, I mean, like my pastoral lens is on here, like probably somebody struggling with it. And so you want to start with the idea that um, all sexual sin is probably going to be the, the kind that the devil really wants to just lay guilt upon guilt upon you and knowing that um, you're saved in Christ and that he, he loves you. Uh, and yet talking and, and getting help in that. I, I think what you said, just a, a basic framework that's helpful is, is looking at all sexual activity within the confines of marriage for the sake of flourishing sexually mm -hmm. in it. And like you said, I, I think um, all sexual activity, it, it would be odd to have it be something that is primarily just for yourself. And this is where, I mean, there would be a ton of secular people who would just absolutely balk at right. this. And violently say, like, disagree. Violently yeah. disagree. This is a very healthy thing. You see it in nature, this and that. Um, but I think one of the things is it, like, it's not this uncontrollable urge. Like you can actually exhibit self-control. Um, and I think there is science that says like the more you do that, the more it actually um, creates in you a desire to do it more. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it falls under the idea of self-control. Jeff mentioned something because this came up, I think when, when we met like weeks ago or whatever, uh, gave the example of like, well, what if you're married and what if your spouse is at war or something like that? And it's like, well, maybe there's like really um, off cases where something like that, you know, if you're married. It's Jeff with his military lens. Yeah, that was very <laughs> Jeff-like. I don't know. He's, if he listens to this, he's not going to like that. But um, I don't know. It's very, like, you never want to say like hard and fast no, but it would just be hard to imagine that not being lust in some ways. If I'm just looking at my own heart, like it would be really, like that, that would just be difficult. Yeah. So let's move on. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Andrew would have passed out. Boldly going in, in the angels fear to tread. <laughs> Made me think of Andrew on Sunday where he's Victorian sensibilities or whatever. <laughs> yeah. All right. Totally opposite end of the spectrum. Who should our prayer buddies be? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I love about theology on tap. Where else can you have those two topics juxtaposed? Um, so I, I love the idea of prayer buddies. I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, it sounds kind of like different. It sounds kind of like care bears to me. Um, but but I'm going to take it for what I hope it means because what I hope it means is something really beautiful, which is people that you share your heart with and that you are ready to pray for and with at any given moment. And so I would say that is people that have a heart after God, that are seeking after God, and um, who God has put you together with those people so that you have some level of commitment in your relationship. And one of the most important ways to build intimacy in a friendship is to pray for one another. And one of the problems that Christians have a lot of times is we will, uh, like if you're in a Bible study, a lot of times people will share prayer requests, um, and then like they'll look at the priest and say, would you pray for us before we end? Um, which is fine, but how much better to actually pray for one another? Uh, I think that making that a regular part of your friendships, I try when I get together with people that I'm close to, at the end of the time, 
um, that we're together to spend some time praying together. And so I think people that you're like regularly getting together with, those are people that you should be praying with. All right, uh, this is going to be the last one because it's okay. almost 8.15. So if you haven't submitted a question, you want to submit a question, go ahead, grab a sheet uh, and do that. But this is a great one. I wanted to um, ask this. We can keep going. Obviously, we, have, we can do this another time, actually. But uh, why do we say the same prayers at, at our church every Sunday, aside from uh, being a reminder and a celebration of God's grace? Sometimes it feels like they are just memorized. And I want to throw in there one of the others that we had that was like, you know, the, the whole point of why, why do we kneel and do all these things? Because I think those are related. So why do we say these prayers that are can come across that they're the same and what's with all the kneeling and stuff like that? Yeah, so that is a, a really great question. And one of the things that you will know if you've been to churches of different traditions is that there are very different ways of approaching this in different traditions. Justin and I are both Anglicans, so we have uh, a predilection for a particular point of view about this. This is not an area that the scriptures say you must do it this way or that way. Um, But I would say that uh, one of the reasons that we use liturgy, which is prayers that are written out um, and that there's a structure and a sequence to, is that we are worshiping a holy God. And we are not holy, we are sinful. And so, um, and most of us have trouble being focused and articulating uh, our prayers to God beyond just what our immediate needs are. And a liturgy enables you to put together prayers that reflect the beauty, truth, and goodness that are found in the kingdom of God and to respond to the directives in scripture about what we are to pray for as we worship God. So I would say that they are a tool and the more familiar that you become with them, the more beautiful they are. And when you engage them, part of the problem is that in the Anglican tradition, what used to always be the practice is that say St. Philip's has 1030 service, you would wanna be in your pew by 1020 and then you would kneel quietly in your pew and ask God to open your heart um, to cleanse you from your sins and to enable you to fully worship him. And part of the problem for a lot of us is when we run in at the last minute and then we jump into these prayers and we're not, we're not prepared for them. And the kneeling, I think, is really important. Um, there's a great C.S. Lewis passage in Screwtape Letters about this. But what he talks about is that our body language is important. And kneeling is a way that we demonstrate submission. Kneeling is something that most of us don't do on a daily basis. It's something that's different. It's outside the norm of our relationships. And so when you go to God and you kneel, it indicates that he's the creator and you are the creation, that he is the father, that you are the beloved child, and it's a way of showing honor and reverence to him. Uh, personally, I grew up in this sort of tradition in the Anglican world, and I hated it. I couldn't wait to leave and uh, was in a very different tradition. It was a, a Baptist church in, in college that had like 2,000 people, and they had you know, a few songs with like a lot of folks at front, and then they gave a long message, which was great, and then we ended with some songs. And so one of the things that, uh, obviously I'm now uh, an Anglican priest, and so the things that changed for me if I could summarize it, it'd be the democracy of the dead, which is a term that I've heard before, but it's basically recognizing that the people who've gone before us, chances are like they really were onto something. And so recognizing what the church has done, these people weren't stupid, they actually knew a lot. Um, and what they knew, I mean, first of all, if you read these prayers, they're, they're centuries old. Some, some of them going back to like uh, millennia, I mean, going back to the very early church. And they're beautiful. Yes. And so it's, one, humility enough to know, like, I am not that good at articulating some of the beauty in all this. And what I want is that beauty to just soak and saturate my heart. And a lot of, you know, kneeling, it's uh, what the democracy of the dead, the, the people who've gone ahead of us in the faith, they've taught that, you know, what you do actually shapes your heart. Yes. And so these practices, you know, we do them, hopefully, and, and we want to engage with it. 
but we, we desire that what we do actually begins to change our hearts so that we begin to feel it more and more. Yes. So that's why one of the things that's dangerous, I, I felt like, was you know, just only doing that which I feel like is always a dangerous thing. And so in the in Sunday worship, it's it's like training. You know, you're yeah. training yourself for the and week. Formation. In yeah. formation to do that. So yeah. uh, we we really need to get going here. So do we have any questions? Yeah. We have a few. Is the chicken at Florence's Low Country Kitchen a contender for the Lord's chicken? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, I would say that Ooh. that title has been claimed jealously by Chick-fil-A. Um, but I would say Florence's Low Country Kitchen's chicken is of a different ilk. Um, it's not a sandwich. It has bones. It, it's too good to be just, you know, past, I mean, it's just too good. So, I mean, but it's a contender, for sure. I think it's more than a contender. I, it's brined, I mean, it's saturated in this for like a long time, and then it's flash fried, and it, it's, I, yeah, I'd say it is. I hear they have a happy hour. Oh, and they, yeah, everything's good. They have sides that are delicious. It's great. Thank you for that, Colton. <laughs> so, how do you balance a personal pursuit of the Lord while also doing so with your spouse? Would it matter? Great question. That is a great question. So, uh, how do you balance your own personal spiritual life? Uh, with pursuing the Lord with your spouse in marriage. And I think that the, the, the most important aspect of that is it's both and instead of either or. That there need to be things that you do together that are spiritual disciplines that you choose to do together. And then there need to be things that you do on your own um, that enable you to have um, something to bring to the other person. And that's going to vary a lot from person to person uh, and marriage to marriage about what that looks like. But I would say that, that those two streams are both really important, the individual devotion and uh, the one with your spouse. Yeah. I can just say what not to do because that was basically was one of the things that was really hard for Molly and I was um, – I came into it thinking, like, for some reason, she's going to be exactly like me in her spiritual <laughs> life. Uh, very, very much not the case. And so I think I would say start with yourself. Start with your own walk with the Lord. And things like prayer, that's an easy one that you can do with other people. But reading the Bible together, I, like, I learned that we read the Bible very differently. I'm somebody who likes to sit down and really dive deep in it. She could just sit on a psalm and just go off somewhere else and move it. I'm like, I don't work that way. This doesn't work well together. So when we read the Bible, we typically read it on our own, and then we'll share, hey, this what, is this yes. what the Lord said to me. Yeah. And um, but, but praying together, especially, that, that's probably the biggest thing that we can do. And just I mean, I, I still struggle with that, but it's been the most healthy times in my own marriage have been when we have prayed together for something. And, um, I, I can't recommend doing that enough. If you could do and one worshiping thing. together is really yeah. important too. Yeah, mm -hmm. hard to do that if you're married to a priest. But um, right. yeah, but for people who are not priests, uh, that yeah. works really well. What is your preferred Bible translation? Why? That's a great question. Um, I usually use the ESV. Um, English Standard Version, I think scholars generally feel that that is, or at least Anglican scholars feel that that is perhaps the most um, accurate translation. Uh, it is occasionally a little clunky. It's not always the most lyrical translation that there is. So I, I'm a big fan of Bible Gateway, uh, which is a, a website that has every translation or version that you could think of. And so one of the things that can be very helpful is if you read a passage in one translation to go and read it in a different one. And some of the ones that I look at frequently, I look at the J.B. Phillips New Testament, um, which is a beautiful New Testament translation, and also at the message, which is a paraphrase, which I wouldn't rely on the message all the time, but it's helpful as an adjunct um, to that. Um, I had something I just drew out what I was going to say basically <laughs> to it, but um, yeah, I, I, I've changed on this a little bit. Like, it depends on what it's for, you know. So, 
when I'm sitting down to do sermon preparation, I think word for word, the ESC is probably the closest. Uh, for me, in the last few years, I've become more open to things like the NLT, the New Living Translation, mm -hmm. the message, just for devotional mm -hmm. purposes. I think it'd be very easy, particularly in ministry, just to go at it to try and, okay, how am I going to teach this, you know? But hearing from the Lord, especially the message is something, even Eugene Peterson, who translated that, wouldn't say that it's, he wouldn't even call it a translation. It's more of like a commentary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's helpful in making it come fresh. And I think that's what I look for in devotions. Oh, uh, Bible Hub. That was the name. Yes. Have you ever heard of that one? Yes. So you can actually see all the different translate. So if you typed in next like to each other. Romans yeah. 1, verse 1, you could see all the different translations next to one another for a particular verse. Bible yeah. Hub. That's helpful. The other thing I would say, this is a little bit weird, but... Um, if you have even moderate facility in another language, one of the best things you can do is get a Bible in that other language and look at it in the other language because sometimes it will shake up your presuppositions about what a passage is actually saying and it can give you a fresh lens for looking. So. Why do you wear college? That's a great question. Why do you wear a couple of things? Just do it because you do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are uh, several reasons, and the, uh, the one that you will hear cited the most often, uh, and I think the correct one, is that it is a symbol of being a servant of Christ, that you are um, a bond servant of Christ, and so the collar is to remind you that you are in his service. So that, that is certainly one aspect of it. Most all of the vestments that priests wear, they all mean something. Uh, we don't really have time to go into all of that tonight, but sometime um, you should ask one of us um, about what we have on um, Sunday mornings and we'll try to explain what the different aspects mean because the symbolism is rich. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little more skeptical on the symbolism because I've heard so many different explanations yes, that people, you, you ask five different priests. But I think that one was the classic one. Yeah, that's true. I, I actually wear it for, um, I'm, you would agree, I think, but it's what it's become. It's become essentially a recognizable uniform. And it used to be something that people would, it'd be a position of respect, and now you'll get all sorts of reactions to wearing a collar. Just come to Henry's and you'll get interesting ones. But um, no, I, I, I can tell you why. I mean, I work in college ministry. I was in at a, another university doing this and I would wear it on campus and boy, you stand out like a sore thumb. You can be misunderstood as being holier than thou. You can be misunderstood for being Catholic, which I'm thoroughly not um, very Protestant. And the reason being that in times of crisis, people know by your uniform who you are and just uh, I would have folks in, uh, believe it, like Rush Week, where it was miserable, and somebody who's not even a Christian would be willing to come and talk to me because yeah. of that. So that's really the reason. It's easily identifiable if I'm meeting somebody. and um, So I've really changed, because I used to hate the idea of doing all of that. But. Yeah, and I would say it really is remarkable how, when you do have the collar on, people that are at a place of need for some reason, even though they don't know you at all, will come and just open their heart to you. And I mean, that happens to me because I'm out and about a fair amount, usually a couple of times a week. I mean, week in and week out. So, um, and if you didn't have the collar, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. There's a Johnny Cash song, too, about it. The Man in Black. You should listen to that. Right, one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's always a good one. But, any more, or is that? What is it not? Oh, yeah. I've heard of that. <laughs> uh, it is the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace uh, is the uh, way that it's expressed in the prayer book catechism. And the idea of that is that in baptism, Jesus in his great commission commanded that we go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And at its simplest level, baptism is a washing with water, um, which is a symbol of repentance and cleansing from sin. It's also symbolic of new life. The Baptists um, probably do this a little better than we do because they dunk you 
Um, and the, the dunking is a more visible symbol, perhaps, that, and the idea is that you have died to your old self and you are raised to new life in Christ through the water of baptism. Um, it is not like a magic potion um, that is like your uh, validated ticket to get into heaven, um, but it is, a again, a, the beginning of a covenant relationship between um, the person being baptized and God. And that is, in our tradition, mediated with the parents and the godparents um, making promises and vows on behalf of the child. Boy, there's so much you could say. I think there it, is. Um, Books so, have been written on this. So much. And there's lots of disagreement, but I want to try to stick to the things that we all would hopefully, any Christian would agree upon. Um, and so, yes, it doesn't make you a Christian. I think that's where we would differ from Catholics. Um, however, I would say that uh, on the other end of the spectrum, it's less about us. Like uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two ordinances or sacraments is what they're commonly called. They're a visible sermon. It's more about Jesus right. than it is about us. Yeah. And so you see that in both of those. And I think we've lost some of that, particularly in, the, in America now, that what, what's happening in baptism? Well, it's a picture of those who've been united to Jesus. It's a picture of, well, who really underwent uh, a death down into mm -hmm. the waters of God's wrath? Um, Jesus at the cross. Right. Was, yep. He talked about he had a baptism, and he was referring to his death on the cross. Mm -hmm. he had a, and, and so when we bat, we're baptized, we're showing that we're uniting ourselves to Jesus, but it's about what he's done for us. And so the direction of both baptism and the Lord's Supper is less... It's more God coming down to us. And so it's seeing with our eyes what we hear in our ears yeah. in a sermon. Um, I think that's a good place to yes. end for yes. tonight. So thank you all for coming. These we are great, and there are more of them yeah. in here. We're going to we're gonna keep these because this was great. We barely touched uh, some of those. So we'll do it again. Yes. I forgot what is up next for next time, but I'll send an email. If you're not I think on it our, might be spiritual disciplines. Is it? Growing in your faith. I'm so glad you're doing this with me and you're never all this stuff. So we're going to do spiritual disciplines and how to grow deeper in your faith next time. Uh, if you want to get on our email list, you can do that here. But, uh, yeah, thanks again. This Thank you great. for coming. It's great to see you all.